Our scripture reading this evening is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 32. For I received from the Lord what, you, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. We are in our eighth installment of First uh, Corinthians, eight of ten. We have a few more. Uh, Unity is quite the big ideal, right? One voice, one mind, one team, one nation, uh, a boundedness together, especially if you're going to honor uh, diversity and different voices and disparate parts. Uh, Unity is a big ideal. It really is. Uh, Communities. So any community. I'm not talking about just a church community. I'm talking about any community, be a club, institution, organization, neighborhood, whatever you, whatever community you're talking about. We want to, we want to think of them as common unities. And they rally around something that everyone in that group generally agrees upon. That's how, that's how they rally. They'll form. Communities will form that way. Common unities. And you can find similar values even in, let's say, uh, South Pass neighborhoods or San Marino neighborhoods. You can identify a unifying idea or value with everybody who lives there. But the truest measure of unity, and I think you all know this, is not necessarily what they rally around, although that is big, but the test comes when there are problems. When there are wounds, when there are infractions, when there are misbehaviors, when there's problems, failures, mistakes, hurts, offense, then what it does is when that enters into the picture, when bad things enter into the picture, what it does is it tests the strength of that unifying factor. Uh, uh, sports teams are unifiers. All right? This is 
might feel a little, the wound is a little fresh here, but, um, you know, 56,000 people can get together in Chavez Ravine and we can chant, I love LA, right? When they play the little refrain. And I can hug a total stranger in eight directions, you know, down, diagonal, side, diagonal, up, diagonal, side, like you, you is that six or eight? <laughs> Right. Uh, you can be unified in a sea of blue, and it's actually pretty electric. It really is. Like if if someone uh, hits a home run, um, and I, I don't even know this person, but we're like, yeah. Um, I, I I think of it a different way. Um, I, I was. Uh, there was an 80-year-old man in my last church, John Graham. He's still ticking. Uh, but at the time, he was 80 years old, uh, leukemia. So he's a leukemia patient, and he's like, let's go see a football game, Alabama football game. So um, we go see this football game, and it's, it's a last-minute drive, and uh, they score. And um, like... I think I lost all self-respect. Like, I was rubbing his head. I was like, Johnny, Johnny, Johnny. Like, I was frog-hugging, like, this 80-year-old guy with Luke. Like, that's not a good look, especially after you all calm down. You're like, hey, all right, here, let's just fix that. But, it, but it's electric, and when you leave, you're like, that was a bonding, unifying experience. Uh, teams are like that. Now, until a loss, um, it took an hour and a half last night, and on my news feed um, was an article uh, proposing the firing of Dave Roberts. Okay, uh, uh, don't, I mean, <laughs> historic win regular seasons, and they're saying, yeah, we need to get rid of them. Okay, so, so uh, unification with sports teams, it's a fragile, brittle thing. And I've said this before, is like you leave that electric atmosphere after a Dodger win, and you get in your car and you drive home, right? And I've had Dodger blue, like we're, we're both Dodger fans, we love LA, completely cuss me out because I had the gall to want to get my turn. I mean, it's a wonderful experience. You should... You should experience that too. But you, so unification of the Dodgers is kind of fragile and brittle when it comes to like leaving the stadium. It's pretty brittle. Um, so unification has its limits. Like the unifying factor, whatever you choose to unify you, it has its limits. Because if you're a Dodger fan, you can't unify with Giants fans. Sorry, Peter. You can't unify with Atlanta fans and all the other major league baseball. You can't do that. So Paul addresses communion in 1 Corinthians 11. And he thinks that the unifying factor for Christians, like what do, what is it that we do have in common? Like what is it that pulls us together? What is that thing? Um, and then, which is Jesus, we'll get there. And then he wants to say, okay, well, how do we practice? There is a unifying practice that we do that expresses that our unifying factor is Jesus. And that is the Lord's table. So we're going to get there. Now I want you to remember when Paul is talking about this, um, he's talking about 
unification and the beautiful things that happen in community. He's, he's talking it not because the Christians in Corinth are actually um, partners, pals, and seamlessly unified. Like, they're wildly different people. Um, it's a global concoction of different people from different cultures, different personalities, stories, races, religions, and different types of brokenness. Uh, and what had happened in Corinth, this is the amazing thing, and it happened in other city-states as well, but what had happened in Corinth, what was remarkable, is that they had heard the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection, and somehow, by God's power, had been made alive by His Spirit. And they were captivated by this idea. They were uh, captivated by the God-man who descended from heaven so that we didn't have to achieve heaven. God came to us. They were captivated by that. They were captivated that anyone, anywhere, whatever your state was, it didn't matter how low, how crazy your junk was, is that the cross of Jesus could meet you there and make you right with God. And you were like, and I didn't do a dang thing. And that was very compelling. That was very compelling. So you had this community where, okay, they drag all of their craziness and say, I believe this, what you just told me about Jesus. I believe it. Now what? And they're radically crazy, radically broken. So much so that they really messed up the idea of the Lord's Supper. They didn't even know what to do. They had heard about it and they totally jacked it up. And so Paul is writing to say, hey, you're doing some things about the Lord's Supper. And I'm gonna gonna tell you, I'm going to correct you because all of that craziness doesn't speak to the unification of you guys. In fact, the Corinthian church is really divided. It's really divided. Okay, so what were the issues? I'm going to do this really quickly. First issue was this. Um, what, What they thought was, I can come to worship. I can come to a place where we all get together, like as Jesus followers, and I actually have the luxury of being really angry at you, not talking to you, and getting in my clique with all my posse and my, and my homies and my allies, and I don't have to like you. In fact, I'm going to come to this place and I can argue with you at any time. I don't have to be, know you and love you and honor and respect you. So that's issue number one. Um, if, if you guys tried this and then, and then they're saying, okay, let's do the Lord's supper together. Has this happened to you guys at home? Like, you know, if mom and dad get out of sync and you're mad at each other and then you try to have a meal, (laughs) how fun is that meal? (laughs) You know, you pretend talk and then pretty soon everyone's just like, just eating. It's horrible. You, you can't be mad at each other and share a meal. And so, but that's what's happening here in Corinth. I can be mad at you, and we can come together and act like we're unified in this Lord's Supper. So that was issue number one. Issue number two is this, BYOF. So what people did is when they thought supper, they thought like banquet, like Roman Greek banquet. So what they did is they would bring basically their picnic, great food. So some people would bring just an amazing spread and they'd say, hey, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper there. Now, they wouldn't share it with people that had little or none. So you would have, you would have a, a poor person literally just in the corner like nibbling on their nails and swallowing their spit. Like it's humiliating to them. 
They're like, oh, you didn't have food? Well, this, this roasted chicken wing is delicious. Right? So uh, that was issue number two. It's like, we're going to bring food and we're going to eat it in front of you. And we don't, we, don't, we don't have no obligation to share this great stuff with you. No obligation. Third issue in Corinth is BYOB. And that is this, is you had some people getting hammered. This is verse 21. Um, uh, and so they would come to worship and they'd be like, I guess this is a banquet. I guess this is a celebration. So let the wine flow. And of course they wouldn't share. But then they would get chatty and obnoxious in worship. And supposedly, I'm going to celebrate the Lord's Supper through intoxication. Like, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get lit. But it's at church, so it's spiritual. <laughs> Very similar to what the Corinthians thought about going to the Acro-Corinth. Like, I'm going to go to the temple of Aphrodite, and it's going to be a spiritual experience. And what they did is they overlaid that onto the church at Corinth and said, I'm going to sneak my model in, I'm going to get hammered, in its spirituality. Fourth issue. Paul says this. They were eating... And this is, um, you can find this in uh, verses 23 through 26. Um, They were eating flippantly, but he says this phrase, um, they were eating without worthiness. Now you and I probably think of worthiness like I have my act together. Like I don't have any apparent sin like I th- I'm cleaned up. I'm, I haven't done naughty or a lot of naughty things. And so you might think Paul's thinking of worthiness as your moral cleanliness. But he actually unpacks it and he says this. What makes you worthy? Um, one, he says it's knowing what's before you. This is verses 23 through 26. And I'm going to truncate it a little bit. Um, the elements, so the bread, here, I'm going to get you a little sneak peek. The bread and the wine are set by Jesus himself. So Jesus has the opportunity to say, I'm going to tell you what the elements are, bread, wine, and I'm going to tell you what the bread and the wine mean and point to, the bigger reality. So the bread is going to mean my body that was given for you. And that wine is going to be the blood that was shed for you. So Jesus, Paul is saying, when you take worthily, you're saying, I am going to look at this and say, it is the right element and it's pointing to the right person. That's what, so that's the first issue. Um, you think like, you think, Tim, I, like, what does this have to do? I was on a youth trip and it was with um, several other churches. And um, so all of the vans and the buses said, hey, let, let's, let's uh, get off at this rest stop, you know, through walkie talkies, whatever we did. So we pull off and um, there was a, a young, energetic youth guy. They're always energetic. That was me too, by the way. You're energetic now, Tim. <laughs> and he goes, Hey, everybody, let's have communion. Um, let's all get together. Let's have communion together at this rest stop. So uh, uh, they hunted around, and they found some lime Kool-Aid and some Sprite bottles, and they put the lime Kool-Aid in the Sprite bottles, and they found some chewy chocolate chip cookies, and um, they said a prayer, and they got, and they got little pieces of chocolate, chocolate chip cookies, and we pounded uh, lime. Uh, I, I will say this is I didn't, but everybody else pounded the limeade Kool-Aid slash Sprite, 
and had chewy chocolate, and they were just like, that is awesome, we had communion together. The problem with that, the problem with that is that um, we're not letting Jesus set the terms. He's saying, no, do you know why I picked bread? It's because it's the most common thing to keep you alive in an, in the ancient world. Like you can grab a, 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 a hunk of bread to make it through the next day. Wine is the most prevalent drink. Um, water is not, actually not that very healthy in the ancient world. So he's saying, I'm going to pick the most common things to sustain life. And I'm going to say this, by my spirit, those very common, common, everyday things, by my spirit, I'm going to occupy that so that when you taste it and eat it and drink it, it's going to be my spirit that does something, not the common element, but you're going to know that you're being fed. Okay, that's a mouthful. What does he, else does he mean by worthiness? It means this is that I'm going to understand, and this is in verses uh, 28 and 29. He said, you know, people are dying and people are getting sick because something's not happening in communion. So it's, not, it's because, yes, you're not discerning the body, but you're also not discerning the body, meaning you, everybody. You're not giving respect to all sinners under the banner and the cross of Christ. You're not discerning your brothers and sisters. And that kills the idea of communion. I had a guy tell me, he goes, yeah, like I I go in my backyard and sometimes I have a prayer time and I have just a private time of communion. And I I had to tell him gently, I said, like that's not the picture of communion. The picture of communion is when you get fellow brothers and sisters who are fellow sinners before Jesus. You say, hey, we're going to share a family meal together because this is how you and I are made alive. It's by Jesus alone. And these elements, they point to Jesus alone and it's in his community. So those are the, that's what Paul says when he says, are you eating worthily? He's not talking about your moral cleansliness and all the naughty things you did or didn't do. He's saying, do you just see these elements and who it points to as the unifying factor for all of your faith? Now, LA Christianity, it may not have these one-to-one issues with um, the Lord's Supper. Like, I don't think you guys are sneaking bottles, little minis in your purses just to get through the sermon. Like, I don't, I don't think you are. So I don't think the issues are that. But I think we can have a tendency, even here, even in my own heart, what is the strongest unifying factor of our community? And on some days, it can be like, hey, they just look like me. They're in the same income bracket as me, and it feels comfortable. And um, we have a similar education and probably similar political views. And like we can point to these other things that are kind of make us feel great, but that's not our unifying factor. I'm going to tell you here is like, I'm going to be relentless on this, and I, I may have to be like slapped, metaphorically or really slapped, Every now and then, we're like, Tim, 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 Tim. Remember, Jesus is the main thing. Jesus is what we're rallying around. You guys have heard me say this. If you're ever in a worship service and you don't hear about Jesus, his person, his work, his loveliness, his beauty, his whatever it is, I want you to not come back. And then I say this stupid joke where, and I want you to key my car on the way out. You can do it. Like, I don't care. Because it's an old 2007 Toyota Santa. Joke's on you. (laughs) 
so Paul is actually quite pleased at the assembly of Corinth that has brought all this craziness into the church. He's actually quite pleased. Because he knows that Jesus' good news has done something huge in the hearts of people that were dead and are now alive. And now all of their crud and junk is on display. Only the power of Jesus will ever have all of us say, hey, guess what? I am broken. I'm going to unzip my heart. I am broken in this way. Who does that? Well, somebody who has tasted the loveliness and work of Jesus that has everything to do with him and nothing to do with us. Paul just wants the practice of communion to be in line with what brought them to life in the first place, and that is Jesus. I'm going to do this quickly. How does the unity in Jesus do anything? I'm going to do this very quickly. Um, I've said this before in another sermon is, um, well, the cross means that we can never be shocked at our own brokenness or someone else's brokenness because the cross is always dirtier than whatever we're looking at. So it can go places. It can meet anybody anywhere too. How does Jesus unify anything? I would say this is there's, there's a category for forgiveness. That means if someone fails to honor the rules of the club, instead of booting them out, there's a category for forgiveness and there's a way of reconciliation and restoration. Third, I'd say this, in Jesus, there is now a category for us to experience unity and diversity at the very same time with no logical problems. Think of that. It's this, it's this huge philosophical problem for ages. How can we be unified yet be diverse all at the same time? And the Trinity resolves this three in one, one in three, perfectly. And so that's what we're going to is we're going to Jesus is the unifying factor for uh, this, this, this conflict, this philosophical, logical conflict for ages and ages and ages. Now, in protest, I think anybody can say this. Well, Tim, we can uni- communities can unify around a lot of things besides Jesus. Like, Tim, we can, we can unify around a neighborhood, a cause, a school, a race, a culture, a food, a team, whatever it is. I, this is what I want to do is let's, trust, try, let's wear some of those clothes and look in the mirror. Let's try on some of those unifi- unifying things. This is a very big one, um, especially where we live in a nation where we live, is that um, Amer- the idea of America and patriotism admittedly has been a very powerful unifying idea for a nation. Um, the flags, the songs, the parades, the fireworks, the stirring war movies, the icons of the eagles and Lady Liberty, and the sentiments and the legends and the rituals and the chants and the pledges and the anthems, like all together, like you kind of, you kind of grow up in it and you can say, yeah, that's a big unifying, like, yeah. But the union is crumbling, isn't it? The democratic experience uh, experiment is just a little over 250 years old, and um, 
It's, that's young for, for government, by the way. And it's showing signs of hard, hard wear. Um, I read this about a month ago. For the first time in American history, so 250 plus years, the majority of millennials and younger are embarrassed to be American. Now, 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 whatever apocalyptic social commentary you want to add, that's great. Tell me afterwards. But the fact remains is that the idea of a nation is a not enough to unify a people. It's not enough. So we try on patriotism. Um, political parties, well, are not unifiers because literally, you know, the other half are excluded. But even within a political party, they, look, I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, but look, we eat, it, whatever party you're, you, you eat each other. Very, very, you can't, you find caucuses and cliques and, and they're very angry at each other. Like they can't even be unified in and of themselves. You could try to do this. You could try to go to the lowest common denominator of commonness and say this, no race but the human race, right? Hey, you're a human being. I'm a human being. Come on, we're all humans, right? That's pretty unifying. Like, I'm a human. You're a human. To air is human. We're just all, we're humans. We're humans. Except, and you guys have heard me say this before, the 20th century is called by historians the genocidal history or century. Um, humans killed more other humans between 1900 and 2000 than the other 19 centuries added together. So that's not a very unifying thing. You're a human, I'm a human, we're good. Um, You could tie tribes and clubs as a sample of like a set of people who are really, really unified. So if you've ever seen Sons of Anarchy, it's about like a, a motorcycle gang, or should I say club? Can I say club? And they've got this um, really compelling idea. And the idea is this, for your brother. For your brother. Like we'll do anything for your brother because we're part of the same gang. All right. Okay, unification, except... P.S. The entire series is spent trying to kill each other. <laughs> so, okay, even that doesn't work. Um, family. Now, you could say this hey, hey, family. Family unifies, blood unifies. Uh, I read this just recently. It was an account of Rudolf and Adolf Dassler. They're Germans, of course. Uh, And uh, they started the Dassler Brothers Shoe Factory around the beginning of World War II. And um, they were always kind of at each other before this. But during an air raid, um, one of the brothers went to a bomb shelter. And the other brother came in and... He said, uh, I I can't really repeat what he said, but he said, here are the blankety blanks again. And he was talking about the planes and the bombers coming overhead, but his brother interpreted it as that is me and my family. 
So they get out of the bomb shelter. This is a true story now. And they hated each other. They dissolved their business and started their own respective shoe companies. One was Adidas and the other was Puma. <laughs> right? Like, like you can't keep family together now, but you know this and I know this more intimately, don't you? Uh, blood ties, family ties are not enough of a unifying factor to keep people together. All you have to do is add assets, money, and an inheritance. And what happens? But you're my brother! Yeah, um, you can talk to my lawyer. Hey, I'm your sister! Nope. It, does, it doesn't work. That's not a unifying factor. Like, it's not even strong enough that the that closest thing of family, it's not strong enough to, to keep you together. I'm going to challenge you to this. I'm going to challenge you to find a religion, club, institution, nation, team idea that has the power to unify the greatest amount of diversity without becoming hateful and destructive of the other, whoever the other is. Find it. And tell me about it. Uh, Tim Keller says this. He says, you know, all religions are exclusive. But the gospel, I'm broken and I'm a sinner in need of a savior. The gospel is an exclusive truth, but it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the entire world. What is that admission? I am a sinner and I need a savior. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Um, communion is an expression of that truth. Uh, I first read this about this uh, story, this practice in a, a small history. It's called a nervous splendor. It's about 10 months in um, Vienna, Austria, 1888 to 1889. It's by Frederick Morton. And he described in this tiny little history, uh, uh, really a gorgeous book, um, the funeral rites for Austrian royalty, the Habsburg, the Habsburg dynasty. Um, and so I had read that little history, and I had I had heard about these funeral rites, and it kind of seemed like ancient history a little bit, like hey, the 1800s, you know, that's covered wagon and calico bonnets and muskets, I, I, whatever it is. It just seems very far away. Um, but I had a chance to see this in 2011 when Otto von Habsburg died at 98 years old in 2011. I don't know if you remember this news item. So they applied these funeral rites to Otto van, von Habsburg in 2011. What are those funeral rites? So what happens is when a member of Austrian royalty dies is they have a viewing and they have public grievings and they have proclamations and public gatherings and outdoor, uh, almost like an outdoor service. And then what they do is they have this final procession to the imperial crypt. And the imperial crypt is inside this capuchin church. And um, so this, this procession, this parade uh, with carrying the, you know, 
That's the final resting place. Um, with the body comes to the gates and the, and the door, these big doors of this capuchin, basically what looks almost like a church. And uh, there's a herald, and the herald, you know, pounds on the door, like boom, boom, boom. And there's a capuchin priest who yells behind it, who demands entry? Maybe less stentorian, I don't know. Um, so the herald responds loudly, and what he does is he names the titles of the dead man, in this case, Otto von Habsburg. And I'm not going to do it all because it is, like, it's a list. But I'm going to give you a sample, okay? Like, Otto of Austria, former crown prince of Austria-Hungary, prince royal of Hungary and Bohemia and of Dalmatia, Croatia, Slavonia, Galicia, Lothar, okay, Grand Duke of Tuscany and Krakow, Duke of Lorraine. He goes on. Duke of Silesia, Modena, Parma, princely count of Habsburg. And like, there's more here. Like, I'm not going to do that to you. Okay, it's a list. All of his titles. And the capuchin priest goes... We don't know him. <laughs> All right, so the herald tries again, but instead of like these titles attached to royalty, he goes for another angle and he says um, all the civic positions, like he was a doctor and a philanthropist and he had this built and blah, blah, blah. And again, the capuchin priest goes, we don't know him. All right, third time. The herald tries again, and he says this. Otto von Habsburg, a sinful, mortal human being. Gates open. What a gorgeous ceremony. What a gorgeous ceremony. Why is that so powerful? is because it tests the power of the unifier. It tests it. Wounds, infractions, failures, misbehaviors, mistakes, hurts, offenses, sin is not enough to break unification with the Savior. Only a Savior is that powerful. When we come to this table, it's an expression and proclamation of that. I am a sinner and I need my Savior, what the elements point to. That's what we're doing. It's an exertion of just a little bit of faith, but it feeds you over and over again. Welcome, sinful mortal being. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we come to this table, would you have it uh, feed um, our our weak faith, our our grasping faith? Um, Would you have it be a rebellion against our ideas that we have to do good to get good. May we boldly take it trusting in your work and not our own. In Jesus' name, amen.